Susan, butcher box to the rescue. The other night we had some friends over for dinner and we had no idea what to make. And I was like, guess what? We have a freezer full of meat. So my husband went down and thought out some chicken from butcher box and made the best cocoa van that we've had in a long, long time. Yeah, you'd have been screwed without butcher box because I know you ain't got no time to go to the store right now. That's true. I don't have time to go shop for meat or pick out the meat or find the best quality, low priced meat. So butcher box does all of that for me. So true story, my husband's workplace has a Slack channel called Smoked Meats. And I know you can't like win a workplace conversation, but he is now because with Butcherbox, his great cuts of meat to the door, they can cook up and take photos of for his workmates. <laughs> I love Butcherbox and I think other people would too. Butcherbox is the ultimate convenience, delivered right to your doorstep, free shipping always, with curated customized box plans. It's 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork, raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. There are a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive membership deals. They also provide recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. Sign up at butcherbox.com proof and get our special deal. Butcherbox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional 20% off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com proof and use code proof to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder when he told her do you think the gun was like directly in contact with the skin? Well, I know, yeah, it had, yeah, it had to be. I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no doubt it had to be. I mean, I mean, it was right there. I mean, he had to turn sideways, like you know. Like you see, none of the gangsters when they shoot a gun, they shoot it sideways or whatever. He had to turn sideways up to his head. If Kane's story is telling the truth about what happened to Brian Bowling, then the forensic evidence should show that the shot that killed Brian was fired from a gun in contact with his head. Conversely, if investigators are right about what happened, and if their favorite theory about Lee Clark shooting Brian through a bedroom window is correct, then the forensic evidence should show that the shot had been fired from at least a couple of feet away. And this question of whether Kane is right or investigators are right, whether this was a contact shot or a distant shot, should have been trivial to answer. As ballistics expert Ronald Scott told us, this is something that we could have and should have known for certain. You know, everything that they did wrong, burns, everything, the powder and the, the lack of the autopsy, there's a lot wrong with this case. Yeah. It just seems like there's so many points where if we had just this one piece, we could have had an answer. And yet, because we don't have those pieces, right. we're now left with an ambiguous record. I think the autopsy would have been in. That would have answered the question. 
There was no autopsy in this case. But if there had been one, it would have been able to tell us whether Brian Bowling had been killed by a contact shot. If he was, then it's possible that Brian himself pulled the trigger that night. And it would also mean, beyond any doubt, that it's impossible for Lee Clark to have been the one to shoot him. The more I, the more I hear, the more I'm saying, this, this is really just, it's, it's a kangaroo trial. It is, at least for personal side of the window. Seems to me like he got drawn into this, ended up with a life sentence, but the evidence doesn't support it. My name is Susan Simpson. I'm an attorney and podcaster, and previously I hosted the Undisclosed Podcast. Hi, I'm Jacinda Davis, and I'm a true crime TV producer. Last year, Susan and I decided to team up and reinvestigate the murder of Brian Bowling. Along with Kevin Fitzpatrick, president of Red Marble Media, we decided to launch Proof. You can listen to Proof like you would any podcast, and you can follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. Thanks for listening, and welcome to Proof. A note to our listeners. In this episode, we discuss the forensic evidence related to the shooting of Brian Bowling. This is an issue critical to the case, but it may not be suitable for all listeners. As we discuss images of the gunshot wound that killed Brian, as well as the evidence the prosecution used to prove their theory that Brian could not have shot himself. And that evidence came from Floyd County Coroner Craig Burns. He was a funeral director. He worked at funeral homes in Floyd County before he became coroner. Former Floyd County police officer Mark Corbin told us about his experiences working with coroner Craig Burns. He was elected in 1996, just a couple weeks after Brian died, but he'd been deputy coroner for many years before that. It should be noted that the coroners are not medical professionals. They're not forensic experts. Under Georgia law, the requirements to hold the office of coroner are minimal. You must be over 25 years old, not be convicted of any felonies, and have a high school diploma. Technically, what that means is even I could be a coroner in Georgia. Is it usual to have the coroner give like the medical assessment? He just determines the cause of death through the, the crime lab. Okay. And he takes control of the body and sets it up for an autopsy. I would think it would have been Dallas's job to at least correspond with him that whether they needed one or not. Uh, I don't know, it surprised me that there wasn't an autopsy. It is the county coroner's job to decide whether or not to request an autopsy. But in criminal cases, the decision is made with the input of local law enforcement. A day or two after Brian's death, the exact date is unclear, but Sergeant Dallas Battle and Craig Burns went to the funeral home to inspect Brian's body. According to Sergeant Battle, he wanted to determine whether or not Brian had been killed by a contact shot. While there, Burns snapped a few photographs. In the first photos he took, there's still medical equipment attached to Brian's body and blood covering his face. The bullet wound is not even visible. It's only after Burns cleaned the body that the gunshot wound to Brian's right temple can be seen. 
Then Craig Burns took a metal rod, stuck it through the hole in Brian's head, and snapped a few more blurry photographs. And it is these photos that Brian's family remembers as autopsy photos. The family, I mean, they all, even the aunt and uncle, really believe there was an autopsy. It makes me wonder if we're just missing more paperwork. There was no autopsy. I think there's no autopsy. Why do they I, all think there was? Maybe, you know what it is. I bet those pictures, it could be a semantics yeah. thing. Like when you see the body with the rods, it looks you like an autopsy, an autopsy yeah. photo. The photos are terrible quality, but otherwise they do kind of look like autopsy pictures. When I first saw them, I thought that's what they were. So if you didn't know where the photos had been taken, you might assume they were taken at a morgue. And these photos made a big impact on the jury. Between the pillow and he distinctly remembered the photograph of, there's a photograph of Brian who's already dead laying on the table and there's a rod going through the skull to show how the bullet passed through his brain. And that picture he remembers. Some of the jurors we spoke to thought these photos proved Lee's and Kane's guilt, though the jurors seemed to also remember the person who took these photos as being more than just a coroner. He, he seemed to have no doubts. It was not a case that he like walked away and was like, man, did I get it right? So why was he so confident? He really stuck with the medical examiner. with the No, no, no medical examiner. Right, the, coroner, the coroner. The elected coroner who eyeballed the body in the funeral home and said things that he was not qualified to say because he doesn't have any medical training. We showed the photos taken by Craig Burns to Officer Corbin, who has spent decades as a police investigator. So you've seen a lot of gunshot wounds to the head? Yes. Can I show you Brian's picture? Yeah, I mean, I remember Brian. How can you tell, like, the distance a gun is fired? By the wound? I mean, forensically, it's going to be a pathologist that's going to tell that. That's the answer. That's the entrance. Yeah, see, all your your blacking is right there in one area. So you got the the fire and all come out of there, done a little burning around here, but it was all contained to here. If it had been further back, there had been more burns around. So but that's you a got close. Fires coming. That's a close gunshot. That's one. like right here, yeah. like touching his head. Yeah. Officer Corbin knew nothing about the state's theory in this case concerning how Brian Bowling had been shot, but from the coroner's photos, he thought it was obvious that Brian had been killed by a shot fired from a close distance, and he's not the only one who felt that way. But once that other police officer you spoke to, I mean, once he says they're stippling there. Doesn't that end the debate as to whether or not the gun was pressed up against his head? There, there shouldn't have been debate here in the first place. Um, the defense did have an expert come in. Oh, he's dead now. He's just an older medical examiner. And he said, like, based on the photos, it's not a close call to the contact wound. But because he could never examine the body, they were able to undermine that. The state was able to undermine that and say, well, he doesn't really know. He never examined the body like our coroner did. But even just from looking at the pictures, that's just not enough. And his, he was saying, like, I'm a medical examiner. I testify for the state almost always. I don't do defense stuff. But I looked at these photos, and, like, it, like it's a no-brainer here. It's obviously ash, charry. It's obviously what you expect from a contact wound. The defense expert was Dr. Harvey Howell. He had been the medical examiner in neighboring Bartow County for 44 years. 
He testified that he was very certain that Brian had been killed by a contact gunshot. And, he said, the shot had almost certainly been self-inflicted. But the prosecution was able to undermine Dr. Howell's testimony by pointing out that he never got to see Brian's body himself. Prosecutor Steve Cox told the jury that they should dismiss Dr. Howell's testimony because he was basing his opinion off of just a few blurry photographs. Instead, Steve Cox told them, they should listen to licensed funeral director Craig Burns. And Craig Burns had reached a very different conclusion. On Brian's death certificate, Coroner Burns listed the cause of death as homicide. But, as he explained in his testimony at the trial, he nevertheless declined to request an autopsy. If we had autopsied Mr. Bowling, then I could not have honored the request for lifelink for the organ and tissue donation. And the results of the autopsy, we had all of the information that we needed documented in the medical records. The autopsy wouldn't have told us anything. But it was set at trial that no autopsy could be done because the victim had been an organ donor. Um, prior to his death. Is that something that prevents an autopsy from being done? No. Dr. Eric Peters is a forensic pathologist and the deputy chief medical examiner for Pima County, Arizona. He has performed thousands of autopsies. And he told us that organ donation in no way prevents an autopsy from being performed. And in this case, it would not have even impacted the forensically relevant part of the examination. When someone is a donor, what it usually means is, of course, that it's for uh, organs uh, or tissues that are essentially from the neck down. So like maybe valves of the heart, maybe tendons and ligaments and bone for potential future use in orthopedic procedures. But uh, no, a, an autopsy is something you still can do when uh, someone has been harvested. Dr. Peters said that Craig Burns was also wrong about an autopsy not being able to tell us anything. And ballistics expert Ronald Scott agreed. In this case, he said, an autopsy would have told us everything. Would an autopsy have been able to better document? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You look, and by the way, the bone, the skull would have had soot burned into the bone. So there would have, this is- It would have answered the question. It would have been closed. It would have either been a contact gunshot or a distant gunshot. But because they failed to do that, and Burns did made the decision not to, it's left this uh, just hodgepodge of questions that can't be answered. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It kind of makes me feel sick to my stomach. Like, right. It just seems so clear that something is wrong with the autopsy. There but, was no autopsy. Like, they even exhumed the body. Like, that's the time to do the autopsy. Like, what, if you, like, let's say there's a big snafu and people, like, drop the ball and Dallas Battle made an oopsie, forgot to get an autopsy. Well, you're digging the body up, you can fix that oopsie, and they make no effort to do so. Because even Battle, you think, would have thought to do an autopsy, right? Well, even Tommy, who was in charge of Battle, said, I would have ordered an autopsy. Captain Tommy Shiflett was the head of the department's investigative division. He was Dallas Battle's boss. When we told him there'd been no autopsy, he was surprised. As was Dr. Peters when we explained to him what had happened in this case. In a case that would be considered a, a possible homicide, uh, we would do an autopsy 100% of the time. If, if that was an inkling from uh, investigators or from witnesses, we would invariably do a full autopsy examination with toxicology studies, you know, the, the whole works. Without an autopsy, all we have to go on are those snapshots that Craig Burns took in the funeral home. Well, I, I wish the photos were of higher quality, um, the, particularly the photos of Mr. Bowling uh, lying in the funeral home. They are, as are the scene photos, a, a tad blurry. And, you know, it's, it's almost imperative in, in these types of cases, uh, particularly on, upon a first, second, or third, or tenth review, to have uh, really good pictures of the entrance wound in particular. And in this case, you know, there's really, if not literally only one uh, picture of the entrance wound after it's been cleaned up. So uh, I'm kind of left to make an interpretation of the findings based upon that one photo. There is one blurry photo of the entrance wound to Brian's right temple and a second, even blurrier photo of the exit wound, which is in the area of Brian's left ear. The photo of the entrance wound is at least clear enough that you can tell you're looking at a gunshot wound. But the photo of the exit wound is out of focus and so badly cropped that it's not immediately recognizable for what it is. But these photos, along with the photos of the rod placed through Brian's head, are all we have to go on to show the trajectory of the bullet that killed him. What the photos do conclusively show is that the shot that killed Brian was angled backwards. It entered closer to the front of his head and exited further back. And the prosecution argued that this was proof that Brian hadn't shot himself. The state's evidence for this came from Dr. Carl Herring, the neurosurgeon who treated Brian at the ICU and who testified for the state. He testified that most of the self-inflicted gunshot wounds he had treated in his career had been fired straight across the head, which he thought was the natural way that people tended to shoot themselves. But Dr. Howell, the medical examiner called by the defense, 
testified that in his experience, Brian's injury was, quote, very characteristic of a self-inflicted wound, unquote. In fact, the majority of self-inflicted wounds, he said, were angled backwards. So there was a neurosurgeon at trial who testified that in his experience, it was very unusual to have a backwards directing suicide shot and that they were always straight across in his experience. No, no, absolutely not. No, definitely not. Um, the vast majority are, are front to back and upward. I mean, it's, 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 it's let's just put it this way. It's notable when it's not front to back. But what might be interesting in that regard, I see cases of fatality. And a neurosurgeon may be seeing cases where a person has an integral survival. Dr. Peters noted that as a neurosurgeon, Dr. Herring only saw patients who had survived their injuries for at least some period of time. Although it's much less common for self-inflicted gunshots to go straight across the head, that kind of wound also tends to be more survivable which could explain why Dr. Herring thought that straight across was the normal direction for a self-inflicted injury, when in reality, most such cases are angled from front to back. Now, a shot angled downwards would be more unusual. And at trial, Dr. Herring testified that the shot had been angled slightly downwards, while Dr. Howell testified that the shot had been angled slightly upwards. So which is it? Unfortunately, the photos taken by Craig Burns make it impossible for there to be any kind of consensus here. No, I'm looking at these photos, and it, it is an optical illusion. Well, yeah, the one from afar with the probe, it looks like it's going upward. Yeah. But you're also, it's what the other part of the illusion is the fact that there's a, uh, a shadow from the flash of the camera. And then on the next photo, number six, it clearly looks a little bit downward. Whereas in the previous photo with the shadow, it looks like it's upward. But that's the other part of what we do during an examination. We measure exactly where each wound is from the top of the head. We don't have those measurements. Instead, we're left squinting at some photos like they're a magic eye puzzle, which is likely why experts who have reviewed the available records have come to different conclusions about whether it's more likely the shot angled upward or angled downwards. But here's the thing. Although there was a lot of debate over this issue at trial, this whole question doesn't even matter. But regardless of that path, downward does not uh, denote the discharge being uh, impossible to be suicidal and uh, and make it be homicidal. It, It can still be suicidal. So it's not conclusive either way. That's correct. The the path of the bullet doesn't indicate if it's suicide or if it's homicide. Even more critical than the question of the bullet's trajectory is whether this had been a contact shot or a distance shot. And that's something that investigators should have been able to determine. When someone is shot from a distance of several feet or more, they are only injured by the bullet itself. But when someone is shot from a closer distance, they are injured in other ways as well. They will have injuries from the expulsion of gunpowder and from the heat and gas of the shot itself. The skin in and around the wound will be literally burned. As Dr. Peters explained, this tells us how far away the gun had been when it was fired. 
you have to, of course, determine range of fire, anything from contact to distant. And distant means essentially with a handgun beyond three or so feet away or further. So let's, let's take this from contact outward. Uh, on a contact wound, you will typically see a muzzle imprint. You'll see a pattern of bruising that surrounds the entrance wound that often is the exact shape of the end of the weapon because it's pressed up against the skin. Also, and kind of germane to this case, is that you, on contact wound, you will not see stippling. And stippling is the deposition on the skin, rather under the skin, around the entrance wound of unburned gunpowder. And it's like little tiny cuts and abrasions that surround the entrance wound. And that is characteristic of what we would call an intermediate gunshot wound, not contact. If the gun is close, but not touching when it is fired, then you'll typically see stippling around the gunshot wound. And the farther back the gun is when it is fired, the more room that soot has to expand before it hits the person. And so the wider the area of stippling becomes, until finally the gun is far enough back that there's no stippling at all. Because once you're past three or so feet away, nothing that exits the end of the barrel of a weapon, except the bullet, will deposit on the skin. So no soot and no unburned gunpowder particles will make their way to the individual's uh, skin beyond roughly three feet. So if there is no soot, no stippling, no burning, then a gunshot wound was fired from three or more feet away. Lee Clark remembers this came up a lot at his and Kane's trial. Craig Burns, Dallas Battle, and the prosecutor had all been adamant there was no evidence of any soot or burning whatsoever on Brian's injury. They tried to make it seem like it wasn't no contact wound to try to rule out the possibility of him killing himself. You know what I'm saying? Throwing everything in there, including the kitchen sink, to try to prove that there's no way it could have killed himself because there ain't no contact wound. They're playing that little card so much right there. It's like they don't want it to come out that there actually is powder. You have one there. minute left. You know what I'm saying? Craig Burns testified otherwise, though. He had examined Brian's body, he said, and there wasn't any evidence of soot or burning anywhere. Therefore, in his opinion, Brian had been killed by a shot fired from a distance. But Craig Burns had not been testifying to this as an expert witness. As the trial judge correctly determined, he was not an expert, and therefore not qualified to give an expert opinion. But the judge decided that Burns would be permitted to testify as a lay expert instead. He would be allowed to give the jury his non-expert, non-professional, purely personal opinion. Ballistics expert Ronald Scott told us this shouldn't have happened. But he came across as an expert. You see? Well, he's the, the only they have because I didn't have a medical examiner. Right. The judge did not tell the jury that they, well, he did tell them they could give whatever weight they wanted to to his testimony, which is, that that's the catch-all for all judges. But he let him testify as a lay expert, but he didn't explain to the jury the difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was a mistake. The distinction here was a fine one. Craig Burns was not allowed to testify that he was an expert in identifying whether powder burns were present. 
But he was allowed to testify that he had the expertise to identify whether powder burns were present. When the prosecutor asked Burns what expertise he had, he said he'd just completed his master's degree in forensic medicine and environmental pathology, which had been awarded to him by the St. Louis University School of Pathology and Environmental Medicine. He had recently completed that degree, he said, in the middle of 1997. He does, he does claim that he has a master's in like forensics, but as far as I can tell, that's not actually accurate. Um, yeah, I was going to bring that up myself. I didn't see any environmental medicine uh, course offered. No, no, granted, this is 24 years ago. Maybe it's changed. St. Louis University does not have a school of pathology and environmental medicine, and it does not have a master's degree program for any kind of forensics field. But every other July, St. Louis University does offer what it calls the master's conference. The Master's Conference is a four-day seminar on medico-legal death investigations. At trial, the judge asked Craig Burns whether, with his experience and training, he could look at something and tell whether or not it was gunpowder residue. I can't give you a scientific feeling, he answered. I can give you a gut feeling. And Craig Burns' gut feeling was that there was no powder or burning present and Brian had therefore been shot from a distance. I mean, yeah, it's crazy to me that been, no medical examiner ever really looked at this. I say that I don't understand why you didn't do some kind of test on it. I don't. You got somebody just eyeballing it. I think it was the coroner, somebody, or somebody. Uh, yeah, he was not a doctor, not an expert in any of this. He's just yeah. eyeballing it. Yeah, you're just eyeballing it and saying, oh, there's no gunpowder here. Come on, man. Why aren't you doing some kind of chemical test to prove it? We can't do any kind of chemical testing now, but we can ask actual experts to weigh in on the records we have. And this matters because if there was soot and burning present inside the gunshot wound, then we know it was a contact shot. It would be fully consistent with a self-inflicted injury. And what's more, it would prove beyond any doubt that Lee Clark did not fire the shot that killed Brian. There's simply no way that Lee could have fired a contact or close contact shot from outside of Brian's bedroom window. We showed the photos taken by Craig Burns to our ballistics expert, Ronald Scott. So when you look at the photo, without seeing, putting aside Burns' testimony, if you look at the photos of the victim's head, what do you see there? I just see a black area inside of the wound. And that's about it. I, you know, it just appears dark. But again, the, 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 those photographs are very, resolution is bad. Um, they're PDFs, they, they're problematic. The photographs are indeed problematic, but even with their fuzziness, Lee Clark thinks it's obvious what this jet black, charcoal-looking area is. I mean, it, it, damn, you can see it right there in the picture. You got a black charred area right there at the entrance wound. You can see it, you can clearly see it's black charred. We asked Dr. Eric Peters to review the photos as well. In the photo we talked about earlier, the area inside the wound, what does that look like to you? So, 
the area inside the, the defect is very blackened, right? And uh, it's likely represents uh, a combination of soot and singeing of the tissues, uh, which more supports a contact wound. But the blackened area in there suggests, you know, a literal burning, a singeing of, from the hot gases, as well as those gases being black because it's soot. Although the photos could be better quality, the wound does look burned and blackened, which would indicate that the wound was in fact burned and blackened. Because what else could have possibly caused that appearance? So the color to you, given that it's a pretty terrible photo and a scan and all that, it looks... It looks black. It does. Yeah, that, that would either have been soot or it would have been gunpowder that had adhered to the inner part of the wound, or it would have been this powder that he was using. The powder that Ronald Scott is talking about comes from the testimony of Coroner Craig Burns. At trial, he explained this blackened area had nothing to do with soot or burning. The other part of the blackening that you see there is a granulated powder that is placed into a lot of wounds, and this powder will absorb blood, and it will give the appearance almost of a jet black color. It's called a hardening compound, and what it does when that granulated substance comes in contact with blood or body fluid or something liquid, it sets up like a concrete barrier, and it prevents additional blood from coming out. At trial, there was testimony that the, the coroner used a granulated mortician's powder. I'm, I'm not entirely sure how that would alter what we're looking at here. I don't know if that powder, you know, over time turns a dark color and looks black or purple or whatever this color is. But uh, it does raise some questions as to what one might expect to see in the wound if it's already been uh, treated with some sort of chemical compound before the photograph was taken. Are you familiar with any kind of mortician's powder that does cause a blackening? Uh, in my jurisdiction, at least, something like this would have never happened. Therefore, I never see this. Uh, no funeral home would uh, dare you know, start applying any type of treatment or embalming uh, prior to us being complete with our, our investigation, our exam. So I don't have experience in what one would expect to see with different compounds that may be applied because it just doesn't happen. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Hey everyone, before we continue with this episode, I want to tell you about another podcast. 
Have you ever wondered what it feels like to watch your house burn down or be attacked by an alligator or learn that your spouse hired someone to kill you? If you're dying to know, then What Was That Like is the podcast for you. What Was That Like is filled with real stories about the most surreal experiences of people's lives. On the show, host Scott Johnson dives deep with his guests into the unbelievable situations they found themselves in, like animal attacks, plane crashes, winning the prices right, and more. The show brings you tons of completely surreal, completely true stories, all told through the lens of the person who actually experienced it. Check out some of these episodes about wild and gripping stories to gain some insight on what it was like to, say, be a professional bridesmaid or lose a leg in a shark attack. Susan, I think you'd be a really good professional bridesmaid. And you'd be really good at losing a leg in a shark attack. Oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> so if you want to hear some disturbing, inspiring firsthand stories, you need to check out What Was That Like? Every story is thoroughly researched and fact-checked, so you know even the most bizarre tales are someone's reality. Listen to What Was That Like on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When Sergeant Dallas Battle and Coroner Craig Burns were at the funeral home to inspect Brian's body, they knew that this question of contact shot versus a distance shot was going to be a critical issue in the case. And after seeing Brian's body, they decided that the nature of his gunshot wound was proof that he'd been murdered. And yet, at the same time, they decided they did not want an autopsy done, and did not want a medical examiner to examine Brian's body. But why was Sergeant Battle so confident that this gunshot wound had not been self-inflicted? And they, at trial, the prosecutor asked the lead detective, why were you at the funeral home? What do you want to see? Answer. We wanted to see exactly where the victim was shot and wanted to see if we could find any stripling effect. Question, what is a stripling effect? Answer, it's when the, a contact wound, if you have a gun up against the head, there will be a sort of tearing of the skin, sort of a star shape. Um, That's actually a little wrong, but I mean, he's talking about the, the gas, not the stippling. Ronald Scott is being kind here. Sergeant Battle was a lot wrong. Although he refers to it as stripling, what Battle is actually describing here is something called a stellate tear. When you press the gun against the head, there's a space between the skin and the skull. And what happens is the bullet goes into the skull, the gas goes in, but a lot of the gas gets trapped underneath the skin and it comes right back out. And that's what they call blowback. Mm-hmm. And it tears the skin into this star-shaped stellate pattern. That was missing. The presence of soot or burning inside a bullet wound isn't the only indication, though, of how close or far a shot was fired from. There are other indications of distance, too. Stippling is the little pock marks, little red pock marks that come from the Particles of powder, these are all coming out at the same velocity as the bullet. The burning particles and the unburned particles hit the skin. It creates little pockmarks. It's almost like you took a needle and just put little dots. So there are n- none of those are around that wound that I can see. Now, I, I understand one of the doctors said he saw stippling. I don't see stippling. Stippling would imply a shot fired at intermediate range, close but not touching. 
and the photos Craig Burns took show a tight reddish band around the gunshot wound. But is it stippling? We asked Dr. Peters what he thought. Well, that's the thing. The, the one particular gunshot wound that is cleaned up, you see a kind of a, a reddish bruised looking area that also has like an individual nature of like small little uh, cuts or abrasions. It's hard to tell. And that's where I'm left a little bit uh, still questioning the results of this exam. It's hard to tell whether this is a muzzle imprint or stippling. If there's a muzzle imprint around the wound, then it's a contact shot. If there's stippling, then it's not a contact shot. Unfortunately, the record on this point is ambiguous. So based on the Lunta record here, is there an estimate or like a probability you could place on like what range this might have been from? Or is it too little information to have any conclusion at all? Yeah, it's too little information just because I can't tell whether it's a muzzle imprint or whether it's stippling. So granted, that, that takes us from uh, a contact wound to something that's probably just a few inches away, but it could be anywhere along that path. Oh, so you, you wouldn't think this would be from like feet away? Oh, no, no, absolutely not. Based on the red ring around the gunshot wound, Dr. Peters can't say whether this was a contact shot or a close contact shot. But what he can say is that the state's theory of Lee Clark being the shooter could not have happened. So that would probably uh, rule out the boy outside the window, but could apply either to a self-inflicted shot or a boy sitting next to him. Right. I mean, I mean I'm a little confused here because you're talking about uh, they're playing Russian roulette and then someone from feet away shot him. I mean, that's such a, a weird marriage of, of facts or details. We explained to Dr. Peters that investigators believe that the shot that had killed Brian had been fired from several feet away. And that at trial, the prosecution argued the shot had been neither a contact shot nor a close contact shot, but rather a distant one. Later, the police come back and say this was a a gang revenge uh, murder conspiracy, and that there was no Russian roulette, and that the actual shooter was a boy, a third boy who fired through the window. Yeah, no, I, 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 that, no, I can't buy that. Can't buy that. As we heard from ballistics expert Ronald Scott, there's other evidence that indicates this was, in fact, a contact wound. In this case, people heard the gunshot, but there was a trailer, there's a bedroom, and like five adults were in the living room of the trailer. Okay. Um, and they heard a noise, but it seems like most of them, maybe all of them, except for one possibly, didn't identify as a gunshot. No. That brings up, if you had this against your head, then you wouldn't hear the gun. It would still be muffled, in other words. It would act like it being against the pillow, but you're still going to get noise coming out of that barrel cylinder cap. So if it was a contact shot, that itself could act as a silencer of sorts. Yes, it would. And that brings us back to what would be the most conclusive evidence of all, the black charcoal appearance of Brian's injury. If it was soot or charring, how, how, what would that imply about how far the gun was? Uh, well, if it's soot uh, and, and singeing, it would uh, represent it being a, a contact wound or very near contact, like the gun is you know, quarter inch, uh, half inch at most away from the skin. If the black area is from soot or burning, then there's no question, this was a contact wound. 
or as close to contact as you can get without actually touching the skin. Our ballistics expert told us the same thing. When I first looked at the picture, that looked to me like it was a contact gunshot wound because of the blackening. Right. But then when I looked at the x-rays of the CAT scan later, I realized that there's something wrong here. So when I read the testimony, it answered the question as to why the wound appeared blackish, but damage to the skull was less than I expected. Normally, there wouldn't be any uncertainty here. Normally, blackening inside of a gunshot wound means it was a contact shot. Because normally, that would be the only explanation for why it would appear that way. But when Ronald Scott read Craig Burns' testimony about applying some kind of granulated powder to the wound, he realized, oh, maybe that's why the wound appears black and charred. Not because of soot or charring, but because of an embalming product. Have you ever seen a kind of powder like that before? That no, I've never, I've never seen it or heard of it. That was the first time. Yeah, we gotta find a mortician, see if it exists, because no. Yeah. One... <laughs> well, you know, you find one of the one of the older morticians, you know, at a funeral home. Because I mean, that's the type of guy you want to see who who would have been around in the '90s uh, and would know about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yes, but, but that would change everything if if we find out that no one's ever heard of this powder or doesn't exist, and that that would indicate it really is soot or or gunpowder. Whether or not Brian was killed by a contact wound is the most critical question that was left unanswered due to the failure to do an autopsy. But there's another unanswered question too that an autopsy would have helped resolve, which is, what hand was Brian holding the phone in? He was laying on his right side. Like he he was sitting on his bed like he had just fell off his bed. He had the phone in his right hand. Mama had to break his fingers to get the phone to call 911. So do you start looking for the phone or? It's in his hand. So you see it right away? Yeah, yeah. Um, and your, your mom gets the phone? Yeah, she had to break his fingers because he had the death grip. I guess whenever something like that happens. <sighs> the real, like the only piece of factual evidence in this case that I can't quite reconcile is the statements from the mom and a little bit of Amanda, although she didn't testify about it as much, is the, the phone that was apparently like clenched tightly in Brian's right hand. And if that phone was in Brian's right hand, the way Deborah Bowling, his mom describes, and as Amanda was telling us about, it is hard to see how he shot himself in the right side of the head. But, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know that. If the phone is clenched in, in his right hand, there's no way he could have shot himself in the head, not on the right side. If Brian's mother really did break his fingers to retrieve the phone from his right hand, that would be strong evidence that Brian hadn't been the one holding the gun when it was fired. And Brian's uncle Michael recalls there was in fact proof of this. The only thing they were mainly concerned about when they got to the hospital was the telephone being in his hands and if his fingers were actually broken or, you know, because she had to pry the phone out of his hand. And uh, to my knowledge, they had him to do an x-ray on his hand at the hospital. Michael is either remembering this wrong or got some bad information somewhere because this didn't happen. There was no x-ray of Brian's hands. 
there was nothing done medically or forensically to determine whether Brian had been holding a gun or a phone when he was shot. But members of Brian's family testified that the cordless phone had been clutched in his right hand. The reason I lean more towards that um, Kane either did it on purpose or even still by accident is the um, whole thing with the phone. Unfortunately, the only person that said a phone is in his right hand is the mom. Mom and the sister. But, like, they don't say it right away. And do, do they really remember if it was the right versus left hand? wondered if Brian's family is accurately remembering which hand the phone had been in. I can see how, when thinking back to a moment of panic and chaos, someone could confuse seeing a right hand when really they saw a left hand, or vice versa. That kind of mistake seems especially possible when no recorded interview was done with Brian's mother until seven months after the shooting. And not until 15 months after the shooting for the rest of his family. So I asked Kane which hand he remembered Brian holding the phone in. When, when he was playing it, the phone was in his left hand, and the gun was in his right when he was playing it the whole time. When he stand up above me, and he got the phone and got the gun back, he said, that's when he said, hold on a minute, baby. He's sitting down, he's sitting down right beside me, put the phone in his lap. And that's when he spun the cylinder. Kane says in that final round of Russian roulette, Brian played the game for real. He'd actually spun the cylinder. And doing so had required him to use both of his hands. Kane told me that Brian put the phone down in his lap first, and that the phone was still there when the shot went off. And you think, his, was he still, like, touching the phone, or did he just put it down in his lap and still held on to it? He said, no, he said in his lap. He wouldn't touch the phone. He said in his lap. So you don't remember him even holding the phone in either hand? Kane says that Brian's left hand was resting at his lap, near where the phone was. But from what Kane remembers, Brian hadn't actually been holding it at the time. He told me he doesn't know how to explain why Brian's family describes Deborah Bowling breaking Brian's fingers to recover the phone. That's not how he remembers it. The first time we reached out to Craig Burns, he declined our request for an interview. He told us that 25 years later on, he did not remember this case and had nothing he could tell us. So we couldn't ask him what the granulated powder was that had been applied to Brian's head. And maybe Burns really didn't remember this case. He had handled a lot of death cases in Floyd County after all, first as the deputy coroner and then as the county coroner after being elected in 1996. Burns only served as county coroner for a couple of years though he did not get a chance to finish out his term in office. In this case, the coroner who testified um, shortly after trial was sentenced to prison for falsifying um, autopsies and death certificates. Interesting. So I do have questions about his work that was done here. I'm assuming that uh, that charge and imprisonment was not specifically related in any way to this case, or do we know? The only thing we know at this point, because we're, they're not giving us records, is that mm -hmm. the investigation starts mid-January, which is exactly when he testified in this case. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't know if there's any connection. What we would love to know is if the reason there was no autopsy done is related to his falsification 
of autopsies. What would his motive be then? Funny. He was charging people for stuff that was never done and charging families for services the county pays for. That were never done. Yeah. At this point, we have no evidence that Craig Burns' decision not to have Brian Bowling autopsied was anything more than just a bad call. But on the other hand, it's a huge mistake, and you have to question how something like this slipped through. Yeah. It, it's just... I really wonder if Burns' corruption explains why no autopsy was done, because it makes no sense otherwise. Yeah, and we know. I mean, he's been to prison for falsifying documents, so... He's been to prison for falsifying um, autopsies. Also, credit card fraud. Back in 2021, our associate producer, Amory, sent a request into the Floyd County DA under the Open Records Act, requesting to review records related to the Craig Burns case. The DA's office had gotten back to Amory almost immediately. Lee Patterson just called me, the Floyd County DA. Oh, what did she have to say? I just sent a new request for the Craig Burns case. She was just saying why all the open records request to Floyd County. This has never happened before. And and I did mention that this was only the second case, but I think she was yeah. just well, Craig Burns confused is, about the first ones. Craig Burns is part of, of the Lee Clark-Josh Kane story case because he was the coroner. Yeah, I said that, you know, she could talk to you further if she wanted to. To date, we've not received a single page of records from the Floyd County DA. And without the case file, the information we have about the investigation into Craig Burns is limited. But here's what we do know. In January of 1998, the same month that Burns testified at Lee's and Kane's trial, the Floyd County Police Department received a complaint about his actions in office. An investigation was launched, and in September of that year, the Floyd County Police and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation seized records from his home and office. According to news reports at the time, Burns had been billing family members of dead people he'd autopsied or signed death certificates for, even though the families of the deceased owed nothing for his services. He was paid by the county for each death he handled. Investigators also found that Craig Burns had submitted false bills to the county commission, for autopsies and medical examinations that were never performed. The chief of the Floyd County Police Department is quoted as saying, the coroner may have altered death certificates. Either that, or we have an epidemic of people dying in this county. In February of 1999, Craig Burns was indicted in state court on 36 separate charges related to theft, misconduct in office, and the state RICO Act. He pled guilty and was sentenced to 15 years with 10 suspended. Burns was also indicted on federal charges of credit card fraud for unlawfully accessing the accounts of various funeral homes in Floyd County. He received an additional 14 months in federal prison, plus three years supervision. It wasn't just Craig Burns who made the decision not to autopsy Brian's body. Sergeant Dallas Battle testified that he'd been part of the decision, too. He had discussed it with Burns and apparently had agreed with him that no autopsy should be done. 
And in Dallas Battle's career as a detective for the Floyd County Police Department, this was far from his only questionable decision about how an investigation should be handled. Next time on Proof. I don't, I don't want to say that I did, but I didn't do it. So we've talked to a lot of people who have stories about Dallas Battle. And unfortunately, he's not here to, to tell us, but are any of those rumors true? Depends on which ones you're <laughs> asking about. Uh. I told him I really didn't give it. He was hollering he's dying, and I said, I really don't give a shit if you die. But uh, that's wrong right there. That, 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 that upsets me right there to see him do that. What kind of man does that to someone? This man got a lot of hate in him for some reason or another. He's got a lot of hate. Hello, is Susan speaking? Susan, my name is Craig Burns. You've been listening to Proof, a podcast by Red Marble Media. We'll be back next Monday for Episode 8. Send us your questions at proofcrimepod at gmail.com. We'll respond during our bonus episodes, Proof Sidebar, on Thursdays. Kevin Fitzpatrick is our executive producer. Our logo was designed by Drew Hosuski, And our theme music is by Ramiro Marquez. Audio production for this episode is by George Panos and Michael Yulatowski. Our social media manager is Skylar Park. Thank you to our sponsors for making it possible for us to come back week after week. Follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>